Hello and welcome to the first episode of the Blind Spot Check podcast. I'm Nick Smith. I am your host for this podcast. I am a driving instructor working in Sheffield area and the north of Derbyshire. And the whole idea behind this podcast is that if you guys have got any questions, queries about driving you want an answer from and you're not wanting to talk to your own driving instructor or talk to friends and family, you might feel a little bit silly or whatever, you can get them sent in to me and I will answer them as clearly as possible in a non-judgmental manner, get you the answers that you need to become a safer driver. So how do you get questions answered on the show? First things first, you can email me at blindspotcheck at rps-dm.co.uk. That will email straight through to a specific email inbox for the podcast so that you don't get lost in the hundreds of emails that come in every week. You can also contact me on social media, on Facebook, on Instagram and on TikTok. I am at RPS Driven Electric. That's RPS Driven Electric. On Twitter, it's at RPS Driven EV. So you can send me in messages there, direct message, or you can tag me into a, to a public post and we will get those questions answered for you. Finally, there are a couple of Learner Driver social media groups that I can post in with a call for questions when I'm preparing to record an episode. On Facebook, there is Learner Driver Support Group UK. So if you join that group, when I post a call for questions, you can ask your question in the comments. And on Reddit, it is r under r slash sorry learner driver uk so r slash learner driver uk keep an eye out in there for calls for questions and if you do have any questions if you would like the question to be asked and answered anonymously you can let me know on that one and i won't use your name otherwise let me know if you want your name read out and of course keep an eye out for the episodes dropping when new episodes are recorded. I'm aiming to do every month to start. I might do every fortnight depending on how the questions start coming in and what reception we get to the show. What can you do to help me? Uh, What I'd like you to do if you can is hit subscribe on whatever platform you are using to listen to this podcast so that when new episodes are produced they drop straight into your feed. You don't have to go hunting for them. If you like the podcast, give me a nice review. Five-star review would be absolutely lovely. And any of your friends that might benefit from it, friends or family, please let them know. Okay, I'd be ever so grateful if you would do that. So without any further ado, let's head on to the first question on the Blind Spot Check podcast. So our first question comes in from one of the learners I had in the car today. She's been working on her theory ahead of her test in a couple of weeks time. Come across one of the multiple choice questions that relates specifically to first aid and to motorcyclists. 
Now, she had a little bit of a confusion over what to do and when you should remove a motorcyclist's helmet if they've been involved in an accident. Now, I understand this because you're learning to be a car driver. You don't want to be a, a motorcyclist. Why does it matter to you what the rules are with regards to helmets? But this is all to do with protecting casualties and the fact that a car driver or a truck driver or a bus driver is most likely going to be first person on the scene in the event of an accident. It's unlikely that an accident is going to happen right in front of a paramedic. Okay, so with this particular question, uh, she was wondering at what point would you remove the motorcyclist's helmet? And the answer to this is, unless you are specifically told to by the paramedic, uh, who would probably do it themselves, or by the emergency services call handler when you dial 999, you should never remove a motorcyclist's helmet in the event of an accident. If you are a motorcyclist, if you ride a, a 50cc or a 125 before you've learned to drive, you'll be aware of how close fitting a well-fitted motorcycle helmet is. Now I'm learning myself to be a motorcyclist. So I have a helmet and it hugs my face quite tight. Now what I want you to do is I want you to take both your hands and apply gentle pressure to your cheeks. Okay? So I'm not asking you to squeeze your face together. I'm just asking you to Lay it on there just so you can feel your cheeks sort of dimple inwards where your hands are in contact. And then lift your hands upwards whilst maintaining that pressure on your face and see what happens to the lower part of your, your, your face. Because what will happen here is that your, the, the lower part of your head will rise with the pressure of the helmet. In the event of an accident with a motorcycle, what we are most concerned about is spinal damage. Okay. Um, obviously, we want to make sure their airways are open, they're breathing, they have circulation. Uh, this is, these are the things that are necessary to keep them alive. But if you remove a motorcyclist's helmet and you disturb an injured upper spinal column, then potentially you could paralyze this person for life as a result of, of the injuries that are sustained whilst you're removing their helmet. So if you find yourself in that situation when you're looking after a casualty, a motorcyclist that's been involved in an accident, and either you feel or the patient, the, the casualty feels that they want to remove the helmet. You should do everything you can not to remove that helmet. Speak to the dial 999, ask for ambulance, speak to the call handler, give them all the information they need. They will then assess the situation and tell you if you need to, to remove the helmet, but only do it when you're told to by a professional. So that was our first question and it was sent in or asked anonymously. The learner didn't want to be named on the podcast, which is open to all of you. If you don't want to be named in the podcast, you can email me or direct message me on social media with your question and ask that I don't name you and I won't. Our next question comes in from Louise. Now, Louise is a full license holder. She passed her test in August and she has purchased an electric vehicle as her first car. Uh, what she's noticed between driving in the autumn and driving in the winter is that she's seeing the light for the traction control system coming on a lot more in her winter driving. And she's asked, what is traction control and why is it behaving 
in this way. So, first of all, what is traction control? Traction control is an offshoot of ABS, the anti-lock braking system. It uses a lot of the same components. So there is a sensor in each wheel that reports to an electronic control unit how fast each wheel is spinning. And if it detects that three wheels are, say, doing 30 miles an hour, and one wheel is doing 45 miles an hour, it will assume there that the wheel that's going faster has lost grip, it's lost traction, and that needs to, it needs to be brought back under control. And the way it will do that is to use the various systems that are on the car to cut power to that wheel. Now, it can do this in a number of ways. Some cars will use the braking system. They can individually brake each wheel. So it will apply the friction brakes, the, the brakes that you use when you use the brake pedal, to, to the wheel or wheels that are losing traction and spinning too fast. And it will use those brakes to slow the wheel down to the point where it bites into the tarmac again and then spins at the same rate as all the other wheels. And when that control is restored, the system will go back to a, to a waiting mode. Other cars, particularly this electric vehicle in this case, they will take a look at the amount of power that is going to each wheel. So they will have something called a differential. This differential allows different wheels to turn at different speeds, but it also allows power to go in different directions. So it will take power from the wheel that's spinning up and leave it to go to the other driven wheels of the car. This is a system that has then been improved upon and turned into something called torque vectoring in some very advanced four-wheel drive cars and in sort of sports cars and supercars. So what it can do there is it can monitor which wheel has the best grip, not just ones that are losing grip, but which wheel has the most traction and put as much power as it can to that wheel to improve performance. But in traction control, it's all about keeping the wheel biting into the tarmac because that's what provides the grip that allows you to turn the car, accelerate the car or brake the car. So that's what traction control does. Why is it behaving in this way for this particular driver? Now, a number of things could be true. I know that this driver has unfortunately been the victim of a hit and run accident while she wasn't in the car. So her car has some damage on the front passenger side. Now, the traction control system in her car doesn't tell her which wheel is losing traction. It just says, one wheel is losing traction, so I'm going to do my thing and keep you safe. So we don't know which wheel it is. It will be one of the two front wheels in this particular vehicle, because only the front wheels are driven. But we don't know which one of the front wheels it is that is losing the, the grip. So my guess here is that it could very well be that wheel, and that the accident that the, the vehicle was involved in has caused the suspension to, to be knocked slightly out. And that is causing the tyre not to have the right amount of bite on the road, so it's losing grip sooner. The other thing it could be is that electric vehicles, I am a very much a lover of the EV, but they do have an awful lot of power and an awful lot of torque. So if you take a look at my driving school car, I teach in a Hyundai Kona electric. It's a 64 kilowatt motor version, and that 64 kilowatt equates to about 208 horsepower. 208 horsepower is by far and away the most powerful car I have ever owned. In fact, it is almost half as powerful as the last lorry I owned. 
So there's a lot of power involved in this and it's very easy for that much power to overpower tyres that are not in the absolute tip top. The other thing is this torque that I spoke of. Torque is twisting force. Okay, So it is the, the amount of push that is behind the tyre causing it to roll. Now electric motors produce a massive amount of torque for their power. So you may have heard that diesels are very torquey. They make it very easy to pull away, uh, particularly uphill. It's very easy to do a hill start in a diesel. In an electric car, it's even easier because that motor has all of its twisting force available to it straight away. So it could very well be that having adapted to the car in warmer conditions, when it's colder and there's water or potentially ice on the ground, the amount of accelerator that is being used well, it's absolutely fine in normal conditions. In the winter conditions, is causing the tyre to just say, Look, I can't handle this, I'm going to spin. So that could be one of the reasons why this is happening. The other potential reasons are tyre pressures. So in the winter, if you don't check your tyre pressure on a regular basis, your tyre pressures will drop. The reason for that is that the road is black, Black absorbs heat. So in the summer, the road absorbs the heat of the sun. It then radiates that heat from the tarmac into the tyre. And when you apply heat to a vessel, which is holding a gas, that heat gets into the gas, increases the energy in the gas, and the gas pressure increases. Okay, so this is, you'll have hopefully not done this yourself because it is dangerous, don't try it at home. But you may have seen videos of somebody throwing a can of links or uh, your preferred deodorant into a bonfire and what happens there when the heat gets to the gas inside and it causes the pressure to rise until the can explodes. This is what happens in the heat. In the cold it happens the other way around so the energy that is in the gas which is causing it to have pressure okay the gas contained in the tyre the tyre is in contact with the road, but the road is not getting the heat of the sun anymore. So the road has cooled down. The road is cooler than the tyre, which is cooler than the gas. Uh, the road takes heat from the tyre. The tyre still wants to have that energy in it, that heat in it. If it can't take it from the road, it will take it from the gas and tyre pressures will go down. Having the right tyre pressures are very important to maintaining grip and traction. So if your tyre pressures are too high, or too low, you've got less rubber in contact with the road and it's easier to overpower it. So that could also be what is happening here. So should this person be concerned with what is happening? Now what I've said to her today, she has had a, an incident with her vehicle. Um, so the first thing to do here is to keep an eye on the tyre tread depths. If one tyre is wearing more than the other, that is a sign that there's something not quite right, particularly if it's wearing on the inside of the tyre. Okay. If that is the case, then there's damage to the suspension there, most likely. And when the car is repaired, they need to repair or replace the suspension. And the insurance company should, in this case, replace the tyre as well, because that's been damaged as a result of the accident. Otherwise, you need to be a little bit gentler on that throttle. Okay, because the torque of the motor is overpowering the the grip of the tyre. 
This is going to be particularly true on any ironworks or any painted surfaces of the road. So if you look at the lines that are on the road, they are a slipperier surface than the tarmac on which they are painted. In the summer, it's not a problem. In the spring or the autumn, really not that much of a problem either unless it's wet. In the winter, where the tyres have less grip and there might be ice on the road, there's a lot more chance of there being water around, if you get your tyre on this painted surface, the tyre has a whole lot less chance of actually gripping into it and you can get wheel spin happening as a result. Same with the ironworks. So by ironworks, I mean the drains and the manhole covers that are built into the road. These are steel. They are not particularly grippy in the first place. Okay. The other thing to consider is this person is a driver in Sheffield. And in Sheffield, there are tram lines and there are signs up all over Sheffield warning you that tram lines are slippery and wet. So be careful about where you're placing your car and also make sure your tyres are correctly inflated and in good condition. If the problem persists, take the vehicle to be checked by an experienced and qualified mechanic. If your vehicle is relatively new, it will be under warranty. Take it back to the dealer and get them to check it out. Otherwise, look in your local area for a garage that you and your and your friends and family around trust. Take it to that garage to have it checked out to make sure there's not a problem. Now, our final question of this episode comes in via email from Janelle. She has asked me specifically about a set of traffic lights. And the traffic lights that she's described to me are L-shaped lights. So you have red in the normal place, you have amber in the normal place, and you have a round green traffic light at the bottom. Attached to the right-hand side of that green traffic light, you then have a light for a green right turn arrow. She's asked me here if the traffic light at the bottom of the stack is green, so the, the round one, but the right turn arrow isn't green, if it is safe to proceed, can she turn right? Or does she have to wait for that green right turn arrow to come on? And this is all to do with what is happening in that main stack of traffic lights. So if there is a just a green light on in that stack of traffic lights, that is permitting traffic that can see those traffic lights that is coming up to the line that traffic light controls to do whatever they want to do provided it is safe. If there is a red light there and then the green light that is on is only pointing in one direction, that's saying that all traffic except for traffic turning in that direction must wait for the main green light to come on. In the situation that she described, the main green light was on. There was nothing in red, nothing in amber, and nothing in the right turn arrow. This says that anything that's coming to be controlled by those traffic lights can continue past the line that the traffic light controls if they want to. Now, the reason for that right turn arrow that she was waiting for is that at peak times, if the lights are on the major road, it's quite possible that the traffic coming from straight ahead, so coming towards you, might just be one continuous queue of traffic. And if there's nothing that allows traffic to turn right at that point without anything blocking them, then the traffic that wants to turn right is going to be sat there for ages and ages and ages. So what you would find is that when the lights 
turn to green and that big round green at the bottom of the stack comes on, it will probably go green for traffic directly opposite as well to come towards you. And that traffic will continue in two directions for a small time until the traffic lights that are facing away from you that are controlling that oncoming traffic will then go to amber and then to red and stop the traffic coming from straight in front of you. Once that traffic's been stopped, this green right turn arrow will come on and that will allow traffic to turn across and across the oncoming traffic and into the road on the right. So that is why that, that is there. I hope, Janelle, that that answers the question that you had. If it doesn't, please feel free to get in touch. It might help if you send either a photo or a video of the traffic lights in question. Um, if you want to do that, anybody that's sending in a question, asking about a specific road feature, then do please send in any images or at least if you can send me a link to Google Street View and I can take a look at it and we can share that out in the show notes so that people can take a look at it themselves and we can all learn from these questions. That brings us then to the end of the first episode of the Blindspot Check podcast. If you've got any questions, matters arising, do feel free to get in touch. You can comment on the Captivate feed. You can message me on social media, Instagram, TikTok and Facebook. It's RPS Driven Electric. On Twitter, it is RPS Driven EV. You can email blindspotcheck at rps-dm.com. .co.uk. And if you want to visit my website and contact me through there, you can go to driven.rps-dm.co.uk. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this episode. The show is all about your participation and your questions, so please do get in touch if there's anything you want to know about driving. Give me any feedback you've got as well. And if you like the show, please subscribe on your podcast provider. If you want to leave a review, I'd be ever so grateful. Thank you very much, and I look forward to speaking to you again soon on the Blind Spot Check podcast.